0: Hello, and welcome to my completed Ulysses program, Contemplating Clothing, where we explore instances of women's clothing in each chapter of James Joyce's novel and their implications for feminine characterization as a whole. Join me while we explore Joyce's disarming and often peculiar use of ladies' fashion as a vehicle for sexual objectification and autonomy, both through the demeaning male gaze and from a point of view of empowerment and vocalization for the women themselves. I'm your host, Elizabeth Spitzenberger. Let's dive in. I began this journey without a clear goal in mind, and it took a few chapters of reading to settle on the subject of women's clothing. For the first few uploads, I focused on my prior expectations for each chapter and how they were either met or defied by Joyce. Chapter 1, Telemachus When I told my roommate I would be reading Ulysses, she asked if I was talking about American Civil War hero and former President Ulysses S. Grant. I laughed and replied that I was actually talking about great Irish writer James Joyce's novel, but beyond that, I realized I had little information to offer her. I knew that the book was titled after the Romanized name of Odysseus, hero of Homer's The Odyssey, and that's about it. From here, my expectations for chapter one sprang forth, imagining some sort of perfect character representative for Telemachus waltzing off the page, altered perhaps only to fit the early 1900s Irish setting. I was sorely mistaken. To my surprise, none of the characters introduced in this chapter bear any detectable resemblance to any characters in the Odyssey, which, to be fair, I haven't touched since high school. Nevertheless, I was fairly bewildered by this chapter and Stephen's contemplative observation of his friends and surroundings. As a narrator, he often confusingly weaves in and out of actual narration and personal analysis. I was most intrigued by his perception of Buck Mulligan and Haynes, neither of whom he seems to particularly like. The sources of his discomfort with his with these men derive seemingly from what he describes as being a servant of two masters, English and Italian. He despises Haynes' British lens through which he views the Irish, its condescending and its ethnographic nature. Similarly, Stephen has conflicting feelings about Catholicism, which Buck Mulligan stokes with his comments about Stephen's refusal to prey on his mother's deathbed. The one way in which this chapter met a few of my original expectations was with Joyce's intense focus on sea imagery, which itself is a bit reminiscent of Homer's epic. Multiple times within the chapter, Stephen focuses on somewhat graphic sensory images associated with the ocean and the death of his mother, like when the ring of bay and skyline held a dull green mass of liquid, turns into a bowl of white china that had stood behind her deathbed, holding the green, sluggish bile which she had torn up from her rotting liver by fits of loud groaning and vomiting. Similarly, there are other subtle allusions to the namesake, including Trojan horse symbolism in association with Buck Mulligan, the usurper. While these possible correlations with the Odyssey are detectable, they take a back seat to the rest of the expectation defying details of this chapter. Chapter 1 provided a great jumping off point on which to orient my expectations for the rest of the novel. I want to continue getting to know Stephen Dedalus and his introspective voice, and I enjoy being surprised by his unannounced dives into stream of consciousness inner thoughts in the middle of dialogue. Although confusing due to the lack of punctuation, when read aloud, Stephen's reflection flows quite naturally, not unlike my own tangential ideas during conversation. I hope to use this likeness to my advantage and approach the characters from an understanding perspective while exploring the novel. In Chapter 2, I expect more information on the circumstances of the death of Stephen's mother and possibly his family dynamics surrounding his overwhelming grief. Chapter 2 Nestor This chapter opens with Stephen teaching, and readers get plunged into the depths of his vast and unending intellect. When Mulligan mentioned Stephen heading to school in the previous chapter, I had assumed that Stephen was a student, so his position as a teacher was definitely unexpected, and helped further characterize his perspective. He has an immense arsenal of literary knowledge, and most of his subtle allusions, while observing his students, go over my head and require second and third readings of the chapter. Coupled with his stream-of-consciousness narration style, I'm beginning to get a grip on what to actually anticipate from Stephen. Similarly to the previous chapter, his thoughts and emotions are shaped and dominated by his grief and mourning for his late mother. Another unexpected twist in this chapter for me was Stephen's interaction with his boss, Mr. Deasy. Stephen is clearly well aware that he's more intelligent than Deasy, and his inner musings run rampant during the conversation. What surprised me most was D.C.'s negative and shamelessly anti-Semitic attitude towards Jews and their status within the nation of Ireland. Even more shocking to me was Stephen's lack of inner monologue response to D.C.'s opinions. Stephen pulls no punches when it comes to portraying those around him in a negative light in the privacy of his own mind, and yet his perception of Deezy does little to acknowledge his anti-Semitism. More often, rather, Deezy's comments throw Stephen's imagination into a far-off setting like the Paris Stock Exchange or the, or the connections between the Trojan War and the history of Ireland. Back to the Odyssey, albeit briefly. Stephen also frequently chooses to let his mind wander to his students while they play sports outside the window. Overall, I think this chapter has taught me a lot more about what to expect in terms of details that Stephen will latch onto and ignore, and where his imagination might take those details. As for my expectations for chapter three, I understand we have not yet met the main character, Leopold Bloom. I anticipate an introduction to Bloom's own unique characterization soon, and I believe readers will get a similarly thoughtful plunge into Bloom's inner voice interspersed with the action of the novel, as with Daedalus. This will likely complicate the reader's own perception of reality, blurring the line between the movement of the plot and the manufactured truth within the minds of these two characters. Once once introduced, I hope to acquire a deeper understanding of the relationship between Daedalus and Bloom as well, possibly mimicking the dynamic of Telemachus and Odysseus, but I'm not sure. I also expect that I'll gain further insight on Stephen's struggles with the death of his mother and his grief, delving into the profound emotions fueling his mourning, I look forward to to additional immersion into Joyce's sensory imagery, and I'll keep track of my own emotional reaction as all of this develops as well. Chapter 3. Proteus This chapter did not meet my previously noted expectations of the third chapter, most visibly because there's no sign of Leopold Bloom. Proteus completely differs from the first two chapters, thoroughly blowing away my predictions. Stephen remains the narrator and his abrupt switches between outer observation and inner thoughts continue, but here the line further blurs between reality and imagination, which I think is a prominent feature worth exploring. Keeping within the theme of this podcast, This chapter taught me to always expect the unexpected when it comes to Stephen. There's so much depth packed into his short walk along the beach in this chapter, I hardly know where to begin. I'm unsure if I fully grasp exactly where he deviates from reality and drifts into imagination, but I suppose that's partly the point. The sea imagery from the first chapter returns, as does Stephen's impossibly vast wealth of literary knowledge that I noted in the second chapter. What's new and unexpected to me is more of Joyce's own voice coming through Stephen, especially when he mocks his own young self, saying, "'Remember your epiphanies written on green oval leaves, "'deeply deep copies to be sent if you die "'to all the great libraries of the world, "'including Alexandria. "'Someone was to read them there after a few thousand years.'" Joyce even plunges into the voice of Stephen's father, possibly representing his own father, with a very confusing layering of characters and voices and conversations all within Stephen's head. I wonder whether Joyce will similarly insert himself into the consciousness of Leopold Bloom. The stream of consciousness takes over from there, diverting to a plethora of unrelated subjects. But another theme that remains strong is Stephen's preoccupation with death. He focuses on the sensory imagery of the sea more, this time imagining the body of a drowned man musing, bag of corpse gas sopping in foul brine, a quiver of minnows, a fat of spongy tidbit flash through the slits of his button trouser fly. This is reminiscent of the graphic sea image connection to his mother's green bile seen in chapter one, and I probably should have seen it coming. Once we do meet Leopold Bloom, I expect his own head to be a bit more easily understood than Stephen's. I can't help but wonder more about the Odyssey parallels I was so wrong about at the beginning of reading, and question whether there will be an Odysseus-Telemachus-like relationship between Bloom and Daedalus, so I I will keep a sharp eye out for that not to sail over my head during reading. Judging by the overhang of death and mourning in Stephen's chapters, I also anticipate some sort of connection between Bloom and Stephen's late mother to shed more light on the deep emotions of the situation. Here is where Chapter 4, Calypso, inspired me to shift the focus of this podcast towards the role of women in the novel, specifically through the lens of women's clothing. Joyce's depiction of women through the eyes of the male narrators is complex and worth exploring, especially through the few yet powerful instances of the description of their clothing. Chapter four, Calypso. Finally, we've gotten to meet Leopold Bloom. In this chapter, we also get our first sustained glimpse at the main female character, Molly Bloom, Leopold's wife. She is the first woman in the novel with any speaking lines real time, and there is a very significant description of her clothing. But prior to this scene, Bloom, our new narrator, describes the clothing of another woman he sees in the butcher shop. Bloom imagines her crooked skirt swinging on her hips while she whacks a rug, eroticizing this stranger sporadically throughout the chapter. Joyce's word choice intrigues me here. Characterizing a skirt as crooked has multiple implications. It puts the morality of the situation into an inanimate object, as if the skirt itself is the seductress. Personifying this woman's clothing and objectifying her based on her body and clothing relegates her own autonomy irrelevant Readers are trapped in Bloom's mind and his perception of the scourged woman, who is denied any sort of voice. The next example of woman's clothing that stood out to me is Bloom's focus on his wife's dirty clothes. Her petticoats and underwear are strewn about the bedroom, and Leopold tidies up the space and collects them together. The repeated use of the word soiled to describe her underwear is particularly curious, as is the brief focus on a twisted garter belt while Molly reads erotic novels in bed. Bloom's focus on his wife's clothes seem rooted in sexuality and eroticism, but in some sort of sullied, damaged way. He appears to be a doting husband when he tidies up the room, yet there is a tainted atmosphere, simultaneously sexualized and repressed. In all this, Molly seems to serve only as a symbol of emasculation for our narrator, barely getting any of her own lines. It also seems like her husband prefers communicating with the cat, who, notably, is also a rare female character with a speaking role. Clothing appears briefly one more time on a female character in the chapter, Bloom's young daughter Millie. In a letter to her father thanking him for her birthday gifts, she writes, Everyone says I am quite the belle in my new tam, which is a type of hat. I admittedly had to look this up. The letter spurs Leopold's memories of his daughter and her pale blue scarf loose in the wind with her hair, diving into an expression of anxiety surrounding her budding sexuality. This somewhat unsettling perspective on a young daughter shows Joyce's unwillingness to shy away from the the discomfort of private musings. These three distinct examples of women and their clothing have certainly piqued my interest about the role of women in this very masculine novel. Chapter 5 Lotus Eaters. In this chapter, women's clothing pops up in Leopold's mind several short times, each with very different implications. I'll dive into each of these small examples and their significance. First, we have Leopold's mind wandering during his brief encounter with McCoy, imagining white silk stockings, garter belts, and lacy hats on women in his memory. It's increasingly clear that Bloom is a very observant man, especially when it comes to women and their clothes. He's almost always sexualizing women based on the way they dress or the way their bodies move. He has a memory of Monday when a woman was adjusting her garter in the street and her friend was shielding her from the public. Well, what are you gaping at, Bloom recalls, indicating that perhaps he himself, or possibly another bystander, was gaping at the scene. The next significant description of women's clothing comes in mass of all places. Leopold observes the women with crimson halters around their necks, heads bowed, and notes how after receiving the Eucharist, one woman's hat and head sank. The clothing context is dramatically different than any we've seen Leopold notice before. These women are elderly and Catholic, and after seeing them, Bloom moves into musing about the cannibalist imagery in the body of Christ. Halters and hats are two markedly unsexual articles on which to fixate, and Leopold's inner voice takes on a somewhat fascinated tone. As an outsider to Catholicism, Bloom treats these clothes much differently. His reverence within mass only goes so far, however, as readers immediately find him in the next paragraph imagining what his illicit suitor might wear if she were to meet him one Sunday after the rosary. Bloom pictures a veil and a black bag with a ribbon around her neck. He quickly reverts to his objectification and sexualization of women's bodies and how they're dressed. The final reference to women's clothes occurs again in Mass a few pages later when he thinks about how women can be annoyed that it wasn't sooner pointed out that their clothes are askance. Excuse me, miss. There's just a fluff. Or their skirt behind placket unhooked bloom muses noting that women prefer men a bit untidy he looks at his own dishevelness with a twinge of pride saying women enjoy it never tell you at every turn in this chapter bloom is letting women's clothing do the talking for them rather than entertaining the idea that they may have a voice of their own he manipulates clothing whether imagined or in reality to fit his pre-existing perceptions and expectations of women, it's not completely malicious, but Joyce doesn't signif- does significantly usurp the voices of women in this novel by reducing them to their clothing. Chapter Six: Hades. This chapter is so unbelievably male. It's basically a bunch of guys being assholes to bloom during the remainder of the funeral. Nevertheless, there are two significant examples of women's clothes in Chapter 6, both coming from Leopold's memories, as opposed to some of the real time observed clothing we've seen before. Leopold's first memory comes as he is imagining what it would be like to have his late son, Rudy, grow up to be a man if he had lived beyond infancy. He is suddenly overcome with memory of Rudy's conception. Describing what Molly was wearing, she had that cream gown on with the rip she never stitched. He describes Molly's passion as she pleads with him for physical touch, and Leopold connects this moment with the beginning of life, ironic for a chapter about a funeral. The gown is particularly interesting in this scene, though. Cream, a color of purity, has been associated with Molly before in terms of her skin and her soap. This dress, however, is not entirely flawless like a pure cream would indicate. It's torn and she's neglected to mend it. This detail at first seems like an unassuming feature in a deep memory, but Joyce's word choice is never unintentional. The neglect Molly had then for this gown that's so seared into Bloom's memory has proliferated into her own marriage, which has likely been devoid of passion since Rudy's death, maybe even since this example of his conception. It's also worth noting that Bloom does not use Molly's clothing in this example to silence her, but rather to amplify her voice at the time. The dress serves as an element to a scene in which Molly herself vocalizes her desires, saying, Give us a touch, Poldy. God, I'm dying for it. The second prominent example of women's clothes comes in another of Bloom's memories, this time of his daughter, Millie. He muses, She mightn't like me to come that way without letting her know. Must be careful about women. Catch them once with their pants down. Never forgive you after. 15. Joyce doesn't mention her name, but Millie's age tells us all we need. It seems that Bloom is remembering a time when he caught his daughter changing and she was upset with him. In past chapters, Bloom's anxiety about Millie's growing up and budding sexuality has been palpable, but this is the first tangible instance of tension, and it has to do with dressing. Again, Millie is somewhat amplified through her clothing in this memory, with Bloom noting that she hasn't forgiven forgiven him. Although voiceless, her vulnerability through lack of clothing is acknowledged by Bloom. Women in the novel are empowered through the impact and control they have on the men in their lives, but also voiceless and relegated to the sidelines. In this chapter, we see clothing come alive in Leopold's memories that still have a powerful hold over his demeanor now. I want to look out for more ways that women wield their influence in the coming chapters through their clothing or otherwise. Chapter 7 Aeolus This chapter has Joyce's first visual format deviation from a simple narrative. Headline-like phrases divide the paragraphs, reflecting the scene in a newspaper headquarters where our narrators finally cross paths. Apart from these headlines, though, the chapter is relatively similar to the previous ones. Being a male-dominated news operation, I had to search extra closely to find a single mention of women's clothing. There is one compelling example, which I will get into. But I think it's also worth exploring the significance of the lack of feminine representation in this chapter. All along I've been noting how women's clothes are manipulated against them, whether to overpower their absent voices or to amplify them in a memory from a male point of view. The newsroom, however, is devoid of women, and they are exclusively discussed in an audience solely of men. Their clothes hardly come up in conversation as they are relegated to the background as unimportant to the male operation, except when convenient or entertaining to the men in the room. This brings me to my prominent example. The only time women's clothing is significantly mentioned is when Stephen tells the story of the two Dublin women visiting Nelson's pillar. The women, Anne Kearns and Florence McCabe, are fictionalized versions of the women walking on the beach that Stephen began imagining in Chapter 3. He's developed the tale since then, growing it to include details about their clothing styles. Throughout the story, he describes the middle-aged pair's shawls, bonnets, and umbrellas to the entertainment and intrigue of all the men in the room. Their clothing falls out of the story's focus until the climax, when Stephen describes them at the top of the tower giddy so they pull up their skirts and settle down on their striped petticoats peering up at the statue of the one-handled adulterer. This final line spoken by Stephen is divided by one of the headline phrases that speckle the chapter reading those slightly rambunctious females. The professor in the room roars with laughter at the idea of Nelson as an adulterer also a thinly veiled reference to masturbation. It seems that the pause between the women pulling up their skirts before settling on their petticoats is meant to draw the attention of the male audience at the expense and the vulnerability of these fictional women. It is very telling that these are some of the only mentions of women in the entire newspaper office scene, and they are reduced to sexualized puppets for the sake of male amusement. Chapter 8, Lestragonians In this chapter, I noted a fairly high amount of mentions of women's clothing worth exploring. We continue through Leopold Bloom's male gaze. Let's dive right in. Good lord, that poor child's dresses and flitters. Underfed, she looks too. Leopold notices Simon Dedalus's daughter, Dilly, in the street outside an auction room. He expresses sorrow at the state of her clothing, indicating that the family has become neglected since the passing of the mother. This is a significant departure from Leopold's usual objectification of women he encounters in public, replaced with sympathy for the poor child and her loss. Grief seems to overpower Bloom's oversexed tendencies in this case. Later on, Bloom remembers a dress of Molly's, describing Molly had that elephant gray dress with the braided frogs, man-tailored with self-covered buttons. She didn't like it because I sprained my ankle on the first day she wore choir picnic at the Sugarloaf. As if that. Never put a dress on her back like it. Fitted her like a glove, shoulders and hips. Just beginning to plump it out well. Similar to the last example, this is a starkly different take on clothing for Bloom. The detail with which he remembers Molly's dress shows how focused he is on happier times and how much grief he still carries for the loss of Rudy as represented by Molly's pregnant figure. Again, this example shows a more tragic side of women's clothing for Bloom. A few pages later, Bloom remembers another dress, this time of Mrs. Breen, a former love interest. He observes the same blue serge dress she had two years ago, the nap bleaching, seen its best days, wispish hair over her ears, and that dowdy toque, three old grapes to take the harm out of it, shabby genteel, she used to be a tasty dresser. Here we get back into Bloom's characteristic sexualization of women, especially with the adjective tasty. Seen its best days implies some superiority as well, as if Mrs. Breen is not in her best days. We wouldn't know, he doesn't ask, just extrapolates his perception onto her character. This superiority is seen again in the final prominent example of women's clothing in the chapter, when Bloom describes a nearby woman. He says, her stockings are loose over her ankles. I detest that, so tasteless. I found this particularly interesting because just a few short chapters ago, Bloom was claiming to be the authority on how women prefer untidy men. Now all of a sudden he's entrapping this innocent bystander with his own contrived double standard. It's clear from this example that after a few sympathetic observations of women's clothing, Bloom is back to his normal objectifying gaze. Chapter 9. Skyla and Charbitis Chapter 9 is all about Stephen's long-winded and confusing algebraic theory of Shakespeare and Hamlet's lineage. The single mention of women's clothing that I found in the entire chapter comes somewhat close to the end in one of Stephen's long chunks of dialogue where he asserts, Sir Walter Raleigh, when they arrested him, had half a million francs on his back, including a pair of fancy stays. The gobbing woman Eliza Tudor had under linen enough to vie with her of Sheba. Twenty years he dallied there between conjugial love and its chaste delights, and scortachery love and its foul pleasures. A quick Google search revealed that the pair of fancy stays Stephen mentions is actually a corset-like undergarment worn by women at the time, and Eliza Tudor's underlinen is obviously a reference to Elizabeth I's panties. There are several other mentions of women before and after this particular scene in Stephen's tale, but the clothing plays a major role here. Essentially, Stephen adds to his Shakespearean subplot an implied illicit relationship between Sir Walter Raleigh and Queen Elizabeth I, and that the pair of fancy stays were her own. Stephen further exposes the former queen by comparing her to Sheba, a biblical virginal icon who seduced by King Solomon. He does this by pointing out their similar amount of underlinen, supposedly indicating a fixation on fancy or ornate undergarments, which holds very sexual undertones. The monarch is further infantilized with the diminutive name of Eliza Tudor, effectively lowering her in comparison to the aforementioned Sir Walter Raleigh, whose title is still spoken. From a feminist standpoint, Stephen's words and his weaponization of women's clothing can be viewed as oppressive, infantilizing, and domineering towards a dignified queen. By calling into question her purity, Stephen undermines her femininity as well as her authority. But I think the more pertinent power dynamic worth exploring lies not in the role of women, but the role of imperial monarch. By mentioning a subject as illicit yet fabled as Queen Elizabeth I's underwear, Stephen seizes a mini-moment within his Shakespearean rant to subvert the colonial oppressor that the throne represents. The fancy stays and the vast amount of underlinen become not misogynistic jabs, but rather a small usurping of British exploitive authority over Ireland, especially with Elizabeth I existing as such a symbol of naval strength. This chapter offers a rare instance in the novel where women's clothing is not used to confine them to traditionally domestic or oversexed roles and responsibilities, but rather as an important questioning of power and authority. Chapter 10 Wandering Rocks This chapter exists as a sort of intermission, serving as the midpoint in the novel. In some ways, the segmented chapter is like a microcosm of the entire book itself. Several women are mentioned and interacted with, including multiple mentions of clothing, from Dilly Daedalus's shabby dress to an unnamed woman's gloves. But the most memorable example of women's clothes in this chapter comes from the point of view of Blazes Boylan as he shops during his day. Referring to the shop girl as she assists Boylan... Joyce describes, Blazes Boylan looked into the cut of her blouse, a young pullet. He took a red carnation from the tall stem glass. In this specific scene, it's not the clothing itself that's being manipulated sexually against women, like we've seen in previous chapters, but rather Boylan's actions in response to the clothing. As readers, we've gotten glimpses into the ways Bloom sexualizes women through his perspective, and even some of Stephen's fantasy musings, but this is our first tangible view into Boylan's own sexual character that isn't based on the account or feelings of others. We know that Boylan is a bit of a Casanova who's having an affair with Molly, but this shop scene is where we finally understand how truly perverted he is. He speaks roughly and flirtatiously with the young woman in the entire scene before finally stealing a glance down her shirt, a very unoriginal and crass move. And then the novel gives us what I think may be the singular peek into Boylan's own mind when he thinks a young pullet. Pullet can be defined as a young hen, especially one less than a year old, and therein lies the true debauchery of the male gaze in this novel. To describe the young shop girl, whose age is not given, with such vocabulary is a brazen allusion to pedophilia. It's essentially an open secret that pedophilia informs male sexuality and feminine beauty standards and expectations at a societal level, and Boylan is no exception. Overarching themes of the novel, like the concepts of purity, virginity, and domesticity, also call into question this pedophilic root and its implications. I do find it interesting that this is such a character-developing scene for Boylan as well. It's very telling that Joyce only lets readers into Boylan's thoughts one time, and it's to ogle under a shopgirl's shirt. Previously, I'd sort of seen Boylan as a symbol of empowerment and sexual liberation and autonomy for Molly, but after reading into his character, I'm pretty disappointed in her choice of man, especially after this particular scene. <laughs> Where Bloom sort of represents a baseline masculine sexual desire in his passive objectification of women, Boylan is a more brazen example of the potential violence of the male gaze. While I'm a huge supporter of sexual promiscuity and autonomy, Boylan's behavior makes me question the morality of his intentions and makes me worry for Molly's own health in terms of the spread of sexually transmitted infections at the time. Chapter Eleven: Sirens. This chapter deals with Bloom's experience in a Dublin bar, the Ormond Hotel. Bloom socializes with the other men we've met in the novel so far, including Blazes Boylan, Simon Dedalus, and Matt Lenahan. The characters pertinent to our discussion, however, are the barmaids, Miss Douse and Miss Kennedy. The women converse and gossip over their drinks throughout the chapter, and there are a few interesting references to their skirts and other clothing. Eventually, they begin interacting with the men, flirting with them, and occasionally jumping in on their conversations. Their flirting finally escalates to the reference to clothing we'll be discussing today, with Joyce describing, Bending, she nipped a peak of her skirt above her knee, delayed taunted them still, bending, suspending, with willful eyes, smack. She set free sudden and rebound, her nipped elastic garter smack warm against her smackable a woman's warm hosed thigh. Let's discuss what this behavior means in regards to sexual power dynamics in the bar and in the novel. Miss Douse and Miss Kennedy are fairly open in their ridicule of some of the men present, teasing them outwardly while serving them at the bar. There is, presumably, some business strategy involved in their behavior, as they are the employees at the establishment looking to get these men to spend more money. The root of their prowess and dominance, however, is not economic but sexual, as is evident in the moments they snap their garter belts. This kind of dominance and rash behavior goes back to earlier references in the novel to Bloom's own masochism, He seems to enjoy and prefer feminine dominance both sexually and in everyday domestic life. Douse and Kennedy, not unlike Molly's illicit affair with Boylan and reputation for promiscuity, represent Joyce's acknowledgement and encouragement of women's sexuality, almost on an equal plane of men's own lust in the novel. The teasing and snapping of garter belts elevates this playing field allowing women to be in control of the flirtatious advances in the bar and, presumably, the bedroom as well. This has been seen in Bloom's memories of Molly's propositioning of sex in the past and her present seeking of arrangements since her needs are no longer being met in their marriage. Through this this particular use of clothing and attached behavior, Joyce repeatedly emphasizes feminine sexual autonomy And throws it in the face of male characters and readers alike, in a sort of referendum on traditional sexual gender roles. Chapter 12 Cyclops Cyclops is unlike any of the chapters we've covered so far. It's narrated by an unnamed citizen who describes the day and intersperses unannounced blocks of parodies of different aspects of Irish life, society, and influence. It was a bit difficult to sift through all the twists and turns that take place in the lengthy narration, but I eventually stumbled upon the most descriptive and detailed example of women's clothing in the novel so far. The narrator parodies a newspaper report of a wedding, including the fashion of the bride and her bridesmaids. Let's have a listen. The bride, who was given away by her father, the Mr. Conifer of the glands, looked exquisitely charming in a creation carried out in green merceries silk, mould on an underslip of gloaming gray, sashed with a yoke of broad emerald, and finished with a triple flounced of darker-hued fringe, the scheme being relieved by bretelles and hip insertions of acorn bronze. The maids of honor... Miss Lark Conifer and Miss Spruce Conifer, sisters of the bride, wore very becoming costumes in the same tone, a dainty motif of plume rose being worked into the pleats in a pinstripe and repeated capriciously in the jade green toques in the form of heron feathers of a pale tinned coral. Based on the clothing and names alone, it's clear in this passage. That this passage is meant to parody a sort of tree wedding. The green tones and forestry patterns and other natural elements such as acorns and feathers really overpower the image, creating quite a beautiful wedding scene. But its significance and underlying meaning honestly stumped me, as did most of the interlaced parodies in this chapter. Aside from the beauty and detail of the tree image, a lot of the wedding seemed to come from a very matriarchal point of view, almost like these tree women are metamorphosing over the course of the chapter. They are described like upper-class aristocracy, the kinds of people who get to have their weddings reported on in local periodicals, the kinds of people whose weddings are big news for the community. The investment in fashion in this particular passage is decidedly feminine, and the tree women are described as poised and colorful in great detail. I know there's a lot of Shakespearean focus on the significance of tree branch grafting and the implications of those scientific discoveries for human bloodlines and interrelations. So perhaps Joyce is drawing from such anxieties surrounding interspecies relations. While a lot of Joyce's parody flew over my head in this part of the novel, it was refreshing to have such a positive and fashion forward example of women's clothes put into this tree matrimony. At this point in my journey, I feel like my analysis really takes hold in the remaining chapters of the novel. The next chapter, Nausicaa, shifts focus to Gertie, giving us our first prolonged look at a woman, aside from Molly's few mentions so far. The podcast dives much deeper into implications of women's sexuality and men's objectification, leading into questions of autonomy and empowerment of femininity. There are also much more explicit moments of kinks and fixations as expressed through clothing, and the last few chapters here really get to the root of Joyce's depiction of sexuality. Chapter 13, Nausicaa This chapter was absolutely full of descriptions of women's clothing from beginning to end, making it difficult to choose just one to discuss for this episode. Bloom has a flirtatious and masturbatory interaction with a young woman on the beach during a fireworks show, and the chapter is narrated predominantly through her own perspective. Gertie, the young woman, is shown as highly hormonal, infantilized, and oversexed throughout the chapter, including by way of her clothing. One particularly interesting mention of her clothing comes during her farewell to Bloom, where Joyce writes Gertie had an idea, one of love's little ruses. She slipped a hand into her handkerchief pocket and took out the wadding, and waved in reply, of course, without letting him, and then slipped it back. Admittedly, I had no idea what Joyce meant by wadding when I read the first chapter when I read this chapter first. Upon further research, I learned that Gertie's wadding was a scented handkerchief that she was waving in Bloom's direction in order to fill the air with her smell, inviting a callback to earlier chapters mentioning Molly's perfumes. This particular wadding, however, was likely used to mask the bodily scent that sometimes accompanies menstruation, bringing up the topics like fertility and instinct within sexuality. Through this behavior, Gertie's lack of innocence and strong desire to be desired is solidified. She intentionally and deliberately displays herself to Bloom, knowing that he's pleasuring himself, making her somewhat of a booyer. However, she also manipulates her own perceived innocence and purity to her advantage, paradoxically behaving childishly with her clothing and other behavior like giggling and blushing. This also goes back to my earlier observation, based on Blaze's Boylan's behavior with women's clothing, that the male gaze is often rooted in pedophilia. But Gertie also maintains significant autonomy and control in the situation with Bloom. The waving of the wadding is the cherry on top, indicating through the menstruation implications that she is indeed mature, as well as overtly displaying flirtatious behavior intentionally toward her onlooker. In this way, I like to think of Gertie McDowell as a sort of foil for Molly Bloom in her sexual promiscuity and ownership of her own femininity and desire in a very patriarchal and male-dominated society and perspective. Because of Gertie's autonomy and her wielding of sexual power through her clothing, I'm growing to appreciate Joyce's progressive stance on women and their roles and responsibilities as depicted through their clothing. Chapter 14, Oxen of the Sun For a chapter with such deep exploration of childbirth and motherhood, I struggled to find good examples of descriptions of women's clothing in Oxen of the Sun. However, it's encouraging to see women more directly involved and actively present in this chapter, as past chapters have certainly been decidedly and overbearingly male. I did find one good depiction of women's fashion in the middle of the chapter in the second depiction of a wedding that we've discussed in this podcast. In a confusing passage about virginity, chastity, marriage, and deflowering, there's a description of the symbolism behind a wedding. The sentence reads, "Thereat mirth grew in them more, and they rehearsed to him his curious rite of wedlock, of the disrobing and deflowering of spouses, as the priests use in Madagascar Island, she to be in guise of white and saffron, her groom in white and grain, with burning of nard and tapers, on a bride bed while clerks sung Kyries and the anthem, Ut novator sexus ominis corporeus mysterium, till there she was unmated. There's a lot to unpack here, starting with the bridal clothing of white and saffron. White hasn't always been a traditional wedding dress color. And it was, in fact, only popularized by Queen Victoria, who is also mentioned several times in the novel very negatively. Although it was she who started the trend, white wedding dresses would likely have been a staple of normalcy by Joyce's own time. White is meant to symbolize purity, chastity, and most importantly, virginity in brides at the altar. A white wedding dress shows that this bride is not tainted goods, but a perfectly valuable virgin to be bestowed and deflowered by her all-powerful groom. As discussed in previous episodes, the concept of virginity is strongly rooted in pedophilia and repression of feminine sexuality, making white an inherently oppressive symbol in this rather sexual wedding scene. The saffron is also interesting, with a warm yellow that could traditionally represent cowardice or friendship and happiness. Either way, white seems to be the dominant theme due to the fact that the groom also wears it which is also a confusing transferal of feminine standards to a man. I wonder if the same virginity is equally expected of the husband on his wedding day. Another very curious component of this wedding scene is the designation of the ceremony as one of disrobing and deflowering. Public sex aside, it seems interesting that such care and thought would go into the garments of two people who were there just to take them off especially when the symbolic colors are meant to represent virginity. In this particular example, the supposedly virginal bride is immediately unmated before everyone's eyes, changing the sexual status that was demanded of her only a short time ago. I think the clothing and the lack of clothing involved in this short wedding provide an example of the ridiculous sexual expectations of women at the time and give insight into how Joyce might flip those expectations. Chapter 15, Circe Circe is absolutely the richest chapter we've covered so far in terms of material for this topic. Bloom and Stevens' escapades in a Dublin brothel provide ample material for analyzing women's role within and without gender and sexuality confines and expectations. In particular, Bloom's interaction with the sex worker, Bella, who becomes the domineering male, Bello, in his imagination, finally gets explicit with the masochism we've presumed of Bloom throughout previous chapters. The added gender reversal and cross-dressing involved gives us a deeper glimpse into the ways Joyce perverts strongly held notions of femininity and masculinity in sexual politics. Let's look at some of the clothing described in Bello's appearance. With bobbed hair, purple gills, fat mustache, rings around his shaven mouth, in mountaineer's puttees, green silver-buttoned coat, sports skirt, and alpine hat with moorcock's feather, his hands stuck deep in his breeches' pockets, places his heel on her neck and grinds it in. I had a difficult time discerning whether this is actually an example of women's clothing, given at this point Bella has become the male Bellow and the fashion is decidedly masculine. However, after watching some of the theatrical depictions of this exchange, using a female actress in men's clothes for Bellow and having Bloom in drag, I decided that this exchange blurs the lines of feminine and masculine fashion in a way that was unexpected from Joyce. There's the obvious violence, abuse, and masochism involved in the power dynamics of Bloom and Bello here, but I think the cross-dressing is the more fitting aspect to dive into. Bello is dressed like a mountain man with the depictions of her outfits seeming similar to German lederhosen with an Alpine headpiece complete with a feather. With Bloom speaking German himself, I have to wonder if his imaginative cross-dressed dominatrix is based on some sort of memory of a male relative from his youth, which poses interesting questions about childhood and connections to sexuality. In opposition to Bellow, Bloom is described in a dress and in lacy lingerie at times, possibly alluding to drag culture at the time. Pantomime dames, or stock character men dressed as women, were popular in comedy at the time, but Bloom's sexual fantasies are far from a laughing matter. All of Circe is an important exploration of Joyce's decision to challenge existing notions of power and sexuality between men and women, And the clothing in particular compounds these rich questions. Chapter 16, Eumaeus. In Eumaeus, we finally get our two protagonists interacting with each other one on one after the events of the brothel and in the street. This is yet another male-dominated chapter, and it was difficult to find a good example of women's clothing worthy of analysis and discussion. Partway through the chapter, however, Bloom reverts to an interesting opinion on women's clothing that we've seen multiple times in previous chapters. Bloom recalls his visit to the Kildare Museum earlier in the day, recounting his experience to Stephen. He describes the statues. Handsome, yes pretty in a way you find, but what I'm talking about is the female form. Besides, they have so little taste in dress, most of them, which greatly enhances a woman's natural beauty, no matter what you say. Rumpled stockings, it may be, possibly is, a foible of mine, but still it's a thing I simply hate to see. I find the way Bloom switches from the artful depiction of statues to his personal nitpicky preferences about women's clothing very indicative of his opinions of women outside of his masochistic sexual preferences, and that he treats them as objects in the background of his life. Bloom's male gaze is very developed through this consistent vein involving rumpled stockings. His fixation on disheveled clothing for women stands in stark opposition to his own clothing standards, remembering that he noted in Lotus Eaters that women prefer a disheveled, unbuttoned man. What authority Bloom has over women's standards and views of men's clothing, I have no idea. The repeated focus on stockings comes from a position of superiority and presumption, which also starkly contrasts with the previous chapter's events of cross-dressing and domination of Bloom by women. Sharing this information with Stephen also compounds Bloom's ownership of his thoughts on women. Stephen himself hasn't had nearly as many opinionated stances or observations of women's clothing as Bloom in previous chapters, yet Bloom feels comfortable speaking candidly about women's stockings with him. Overall, this comment feels very inconsequential after the previous events of Circe, where Bloom himself is in women's clothing and in a position of submission to a cross-dressed woman. The connection between the artful female form of statues being ruined by rumpled stockings feels insignificant when you picture Bloom's masculine figure in a dress or lingerie only a few pages ago. It's almost as if Joyce is making a mockery of men's opinions on women's clothing when they come from such a perverted Repressed point of view that's intrinsically sexual. Chapter 17 Ithaca Ithaca was one of the most difficult chapters for me to find an example of a description of women's clothes to focus on for this episode. Stephen and Bloom are very intimately one-on-one in this chapter, formatted in a strikingly stripped-down question-and-answer arrangement that starkly contrasts the complex language of Joyce's past chapters. The lack of women involved could signify the simplicity of male thought and interaction, although that would disregard the complicated introspection of our protagonists in past chapters. The closest thing that I thought was worth analyzing was a mention of women's accessories during a string of questions about Molly and Leopold's relationship and marriage. The questions and answers read, with what success had he attempted direct instruction? She followed not all, but part of the whole, gave attention with interest, comprehended with surprise, with care repeated, with greater difficulty remembered, Forgot with ease, with misgiving re-remembered, repeated with error. What system had proved more effective? Indirect suggestion implicating self-interest. Example, she disliked umbrella with rain, he liked woman with umbrella. She disliked new hat with rain, he liked woman with new hat. He bought new hat with rain, she carried umbrella with new hat. This comes at the end of a very interesting introspective conversation where Bloom attempts to rediscover how to communicate with and interact with his wife after his daughter, their daughter has grown up and moved out of the house. Bloom uses clothing very operatively in this example of how to effectively communicate with Molly. Clothing, accessories in this case, are necessary to bridge the gap of these indirect suggestions of interests. This in itself signifies just how broken down their communication within their relationship has become. Knowing what we know about Bloom's strong opinions on women's stockings and his repressed preferences of masochism, clothing in this instance holds a lot more significance for his passive attempts at communicating with Molly. Bloom cares a great deal about women's clothing and notices it quite often during the single day we get to observe, Yet when it comes to Molly all he can do is make half-hearted suggestions that he may like of what he may like her to wear or carry In this penultimate chapter of the novel I think it's important to understand what we know so far about this complicated marriage Both Bloom and Molly pursue extramarital interests but Molly seems much more successful and reputable for doing so Bloom holds very sexualized inner thoughts and fantasies about other women in his life, but when it comes to Molly, like in this example of poor communication, he's seemingly powerless and meek. By looking at the way Bloom perceives feminine fashion, we catch a glimpse into this dynamic power imbalance. I look forward to the final chapter, Penelope, to see the marriage from Molly's own eyes. Chapter 18, Penelope. The final chapter of this wild novel is difficult to cram into three minutes of speaking time, but we finally get to hear from Molly Bloom's perspective in Penelope. In a series of seemingly unending run-on sentences, readers get to explore Molly's stream of consciousness as she shifts between topics like memories and her sex life and her family. Molly is shameless about her promiscuity within the confines of her own mind, and this chapter is a refreshing breath of feminine empowerment. This chapter also had a plethora of women's clothing examples worth exploring, making it a challenge to narrow in on just one. In the beginning of the chapter, however, one example does stand out within the the vein of all we've covered in this podcast so far. While lost in thought about her sexual preference experiences with Bloom and Boylan, Molly thinks, We had that rum in the house to mole, and the fire wasn't black out, when he asked to take off my stockings lying on the hearthrug in Lombard Street West, and another time it was my muddy boots he'd like me to walk in all the horse's dung I could find, but of course he's not natural like the rest of the world. Referring to her husband's obsession with her feet. Later on in the same page, molly's thoughts continue himself anyhow begging me to give him a tiny bit cut off my drawers that was the evening coming along kenilworth square he kissed me in the eye of my glove and i had to take it off asking me questions as it permitted to inquire the shape of my bedroom so i let him keep it these two memories about bloom and his wife's clothing particularly her underwear stockings and other items worn on her feet perfectly sum up the stalking pattern we've seen, we've been tracking so far in these recordings. They also put a finer point on Bloom's cross-dressing tendencies and fantasies seen in Circe, and I have to wonder how much of this Molly is aware of with her comment on Bloom being not natural like the rest of the world. Molly's sexual thoughts are much more free-flowing and less anxiety-ridden than those we've seen of Bloom's, perhaps indicating that she is more accepting of his kinks than he is of himself. It is through this chapter that Joyce finally emphasizes his commitment to feminine empowerment through sexual autonomy, especially when measured against their male counterparts. Molly's shamelessness and lack of judgment of her husband, as well as her seamless management of her extramarital affair with Boylan, all contribute to this ongoing characterization of female sexuality as not only existing but as sophisticated and validated. Coupled with her nonchalant observations of Bloom's clothing fixations, Molly takes pride and ownership of her femininity and sex drive. Thank you for sticking with me on this chapter-by-chapter deep dive into women's clothing in Ulysses. This has been Contemplating Clothing. I'm your host, Elizabeth Spitzenberger. I hope we learn something new together along the way.